This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, May 22nd, 2016, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Mark Haxo. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Amen. Well, uh, welcome. Welcome to Restoration Road. Good morning. My name is Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to be able to bring the word to you uh, this morning, as I get to do uh, every so often from time to time. And uh, as you know, we are back into the book of Genesis for our, our study after taking about a five-week break to uh, speak about the Holy Spirit. We began again last week uh, in Genesis chapter 11 and 12. Um, and last week, Sam preached on Abram and on his call by God and on the faith of Abraham. And we know that Abram, or as he was later called, Abraham, is a central figure of the Bible. He's one of the most important men of the Old Testament um, because he is uh, kind of the recognized father of Christianity because he was the one who God chose. He's the one who he chose to call uh, to faith and the one who he gave the promise to. Several promises, but one of them would be that through his seed, a child would be born, who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. So today we're going to pick up the story of Abraham when God brings to him a test of his faith in the form of a famine. So join with me in Genesis chapter 12 as we read verses 10 to 20. Now then there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there. For the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say, to, say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? So that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This is God's word. Let's pray before I begin. Father, we thank you for the word that we just read. In fact, we thank you for the entire word of God, the entire Bible. We know that through your word, you give us that which we need for this body and life, that which we need to know about salvation. So, Father, I ask you this morning that you would reveal through your word uh, those truths that are embedded herein. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week, as I said, we, we heard about how uh, God called Abram to leave his homeland 
and to travel to another land that he didn't know, something that God would show him. We learned of his response of faith, which led to his obedience. Now, the first part of this 12th chapter also contains in it the great promises of blessing that God made to Abram. These were promises of his own blessedness, his own coming blessedness, as well as promises that through him and through his descendants, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So after arriving in Canaan, he built an altar to worship the Lord, and after moving around the land for some time, different places, he built himself a second altar at a different location, and he worshiped God there as well. Now we know that the building of these altars shows us that wherever Abram traveled there in that land, he was steadily worshiping the Lord, and he was always remembering to uh, pray to him. And so far, we have seen only the strength of Abram's faith. But now we read of a famine that comes upon the land where he is now living. And it's not uncommon for famines to occur in that area of the world. We read about famines taking place in that area of the world later in the Bible as well. Abram's faith is now tested. And we see that the faith that he has is not quite as mature, not quite as strong as it once seemed. Abram's response to the famine is to go down to Egypt. But notice, in this text, nowhere does it say that the Lord commanded him to go to Egypt or said, it's okay for you to travel to Egypt. Later in the book of Genesis, I think it's in the 46th or 47th chapter, when Joseph is in Egypt and uh, his whole family is moved up there, God speaks to Jacob and says, it's okay for you to go to Egypt. I will go with you and I will be there with you. There's another place in the New Testament where after Jesus is born, when the persecution against all the little ones starts from King Herod, that an angel comes to Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, and says, flee to Egypt so that you may escape the murders to come. And so there's only a few occasions where God actually makes it a point of saying it's okay for you to go down to Egypt. Because most of the time in Scripture, when someone goes down to Egypt, it represents their desire to uh, try to shoulder the burden themselves or try to uh, figure out a way to uh, overcome the trial by their own wisdom or by worldly principles. And so that's what Abram did. Abram should have trusted the Lord who called him to this land to provide for him, even through the famine. But for some reason, he decides to turn down or turn toward the resources of this world during this time of need rather than trusting in God to provide for him and his family. There's a verse in Isaiah 31 verse 1, which reads, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong, but do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. 
And that's exactly what Abram's doing. Now, to be fair to Abram, he had already, to this point, endured some tests. He had been tested quite a bit. And um, we know, first of all, that his wife, Sarai, was barren. That means that she was unable to have children. So that was a, a matter of, of testing in and of itself in a culture where having children was extremely important. <clears throat> but it was even more difficult after God told him that, I'm going to bless you through your seed or through your de descendants, and that they would be so numerous like the sands of the seashore, the stars in the sky. So I would imagine that probably every once in a while that caused him to doubt the promise of God. The fact is, how is that going to happen? My wife is barren. Secondly, he had been tested by, by leaving his home in the community without being told where he would end up. We know that this took a lot of faith. Thirdly, he was leaving his people behind. He had building, been building community and family for 70 years. And um, certainly he had a large a community of friends where he had deep relationships with people. Fourth, not long before he left, his father-in-law, Tara, or his father, Tara, passed away. And uh, yeah, Tara was over 200 years old. But still, that had to be difficult for him. Uh, fifth, when he arrived in Canaan, um, he didn't have a home there. He was still... Uh, kind of migrating around the land. He was still on the move. Uh, and also, uh, that land wasn't just empty. As Sam mentioned last week, there were Canaanites there. And the Canaanites were idolaters, worse than the pagans of his own country. And if this wasn't bad enough, when he gets there, soon there is this great famine. So it's not really hard for me, anyway, to understand uh, the doubts and the fears that begin to creep into the mind and the heart of Abram. The circumstances of his life were beginning to bring on a lot of heat. And it was causing a distraction for him from his devotion to God. His leaving Canaan signifies his weakening trust and worship of God, leaving him vulnerable to further temptations. And now we see that first having failed to trust in God as his provider, he now fails to trust in God as his protector. We know this because before he enters Egypt, Egypt, he makes a pact with Sarai when he said, I know you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife, then they will kill me. But they will let you live. Say you are my sister that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. You see, in ancient Egypt, divorce was not common. In fact, it was uh, not acceptable in that culture for a man to divorce his wife. And so, and apparently the Egyptian women were not very beautiful. And so, I don't know if that says something about, uh, about Sarai. She probably was a very beautiful woman, but he knew already before he went in there that there was going to be this great demand for his wife. And so he comes up with this little lie. And it's easy for us to be really critical of him, and mainly because of what the end result of that was. But how many times do we 
tell little white lies or half-truths. We do it all the time. But this is actually a good reminder for us that we need to be a truthful speaking people. We need to be people of the truth. And that oftentimes, even the small lies that we may tell, it, it can have a great impact and a great consequence, not only on us, but on others. Um, so anyway, he was afraid they would kill him so that they could have his wife. And that's why they come up with this little lie. Abram's lack of faith and trust in God's provider during the famine leads him to make this fateful decision to lie about Sarah being his sister. Believing that this would preserve his life and, and uh, keep his family safe for the duration of the famine, um, he resorts to what is actually a half-truth because it is true that she is his sister, a half-sister. They had a common mother or father, I, I read, and I can't remember now. Anyway, they did share a parent. So they, uh, they were half-siblings, but more importantly, the real truth was that she is actually his wife. So anyway, um, sin always has a way of leading us into places that we never intended to go. And when they get to Egypt and explain to the Egyptians that Sarah is his sister and not his wife, she is taken by the prince of Pharaoh to be the Pharaoh's wife. Now Abraham or Abram is alone, and by himself, he is completely powerless to, to do anything about his present situation. But that's the pathway that sin takes us. There's always the resulting consequences that we didn't predict, that we didn't plan for. But God is faithful in keeping the promises that he made to Abram, and their separation is only temporary. God intervenes for the sake of his promise to Abram and for the purity and honor of Sarah. You see, at first glance, when you read that text, you think, well, then she became his, the Pharaoh's wife. But it, there, it's a longer process than that. And so everybody that I read believes that because there was a time of preparation for any woman who joins the king's harem, that there hadn't been any sort of a, uh, 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 coming together between Pharaoh and Sarah. So, so the, the, the understanding is that, that her honor and her purity was protected during that time, so when he receives her back as his wife, um, God had preserved that for Abram. So, but we know that through a series of plagues then that God intervenes um, and communicates somehow to Pharaoh that Sarah is actually Abram's wife and not his sister. You know, so how did that happen? Again, it doesn't say, but possibly. A couple of uh, theories are is that because uh, these plagues came on Abram and his whole household, they probably did not impact Sarai at all. So she was like, everybody else walk around with diseases, boils all over their body or something, and she's walking around like, it ain't affecting me at all. So, um, or perhaps the disease or plague that Pharaoh had received himself kept him from physically being able to take her on as his wife. It doesn't matter. All we know and all we care about is the fact that God intervened in a miraculous way that Abram could not have done. And, and Abram was completely at the mercy of God to get him out of his present situation. I'm really struck by several truths of this passage. First, I'm struck by the fact that the Bible doesn't whitewash the life of Abram. 
Here he is. Here's the patriarch of our faith. And not only our faith, but the Jewish faith, and as we heard last week, even the Muslim faith. And uh, it's pretty clear that he wasn't that stellar of a guy his entire life. Uh, But not just Abram. We see the same in Isaac. We see the same especially in uh, his grandson, Jacob. We see it in a lot of these biblical heroes of the Bible who God uh, uses to bring about uh, salvation to, to the world. As much as we see the evidence of faith and obedience in their lives, we're also given clear and sometimes shocking portrayals of their unfaithfulness, their disobedience, their lying, their adultery, murder, their lust, and their greed. It seems that as God inspired His Word to be written, He plainly desired that the lives of these biblical heroes would be honestly shown. And I believe that this demonstrates a couple of things. One is that we can believe the Bible. We, believe, we can believe that it's trustworthy and true. Secondly, I think that what it does, it shows us that the main character of this passage we just read really isn't Abram. It's God Himself. And God is always trustworthy. He's always honorable. He's always uh, respectful. And he always does what's right. It's perfect. We know that God is the, uh, uh, the subject of the entire Bible. And that that is why, from the very beginning of the Bible, when the Bible tells us about creation in Genesis, to when we learn about the presentation of the New Jerusalem at the end of the book of Revelations, from the very beginning to the very end, the Bible is about Him, about God and how He brought about salvation to a lost and dying world through, the, through sinful persons such as Abram and David, Solomon, culminating in the birth, the life, and the death, and the resurrection of His perfect Son, Jesus Christ, who was a fulfillment of the promises that God gave Abram when he said that all the families of the world would be blessed through you. Secondly, you know what I'm struck by in this passage is that God's promises to Abram did not depend on his faithfulness, but on God himself. Clearly, if the promises had depended on Abram's holy living, this would have been the end end of Abram's part in God's story of redemption. Abram would not have ever seen Sarah again. She would have become one of Pharaoh's wives, and consequently there would have been no child born between them. But because God is a promise keeper, he delivers Abram from his desperate situation by causing these plagues to fall upon Pharaoh and upon his household. The text doesn't say what the diseases or the the, uh, plagues were, but we know that they were bad enough and they communicated something clearly enough to Pharaoh that he brought Sarai back to Abram. This is proof that God's promises do not depend on perfect faithfulness from those who have responded to the call of God by faith. Thirdly, I'm struck by this truth in this passage that sin always has consequences. No matter how small you think it is or no matter how big sin is, 
there always is the resulting consequence. It's like the Bible answer man, Hank Hanegraaff, used to always say that the consequences of sin follow as surely as night follows day. And we see that happening in this situation. Abram didn't know or didn't plan for his plan, uh, plan to protect himself and to protect his family from the Egyptians. He didn't expect that it would backfire to the point that Sarah would be taken away from him. He believed that their little lie would just serve to keep him safe until such a time as when the famine was over that they could go back to Canaan. But I'm sure that you've experienced along with me that when we choose to sin, the results are rarely uh, anything that we plan for. Temptation always promises instant gratification, but what follows is usually not so gratifying. Consider for a moment the area of sexual temptation, which is rampant in our world today. Whether it's viewing inappropriate material on, on the internet to all the way to fooling around with someone who's not married to you, you will not escape the consequences that your sin will bring into your life and the lives of others. From experiencing guilt and shame to losing your wife or your family, losing your job, and everything in between, the consequences of sexual sins are real, as it is with all sin. And I know that many young men, when they're in their young years and they're dating or courting or whatever, they may feel that it's not harming anyone to be fooling around with your girlfriend before you're married, but it's just a lie. It really is a lie. You're actually harming her if you're doing this as a young man by leading her away from Christ and taking away from her with that which rightfully only belongs to her husband, her future husband. Even if you're planning to be married and you end up getting married to one another, she may well resent the fact that you did not protect her purity from your own sinful desires. I'm sure that Abram was overjoyed when he got Sarai back, when she was returned to him, but the joy of having her back was tempered by the humiliation of being scolded and rebuked by the pagan Pharaoh. In verse 18 it says that Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her away, so that I took her from my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Imagine that. Take her and get out of here. And Pharaoh gave orders to his men concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. I am sure that for Abraham, hitting the road never felt so good. But I imagine that Sarah had a few questions and a few words for him herself. And I can only imagine the conversations that they had on their way back to Canaan. It wasn't like a three-hour flight or a one-hour train. And that was probably, I don't know, a week or something on Camelback. I mean, that's going to give you some time to talk about it. And he also had a lot of time to talk about this with the Lord. You see... God gave him ample time to confess his sins. And he doesn't say that he did, but we know that he did. He spent some time um, talking about this with God and, and making things right. So they had plenty of time to work things out. 
together, he and Sarah and Abram and God. So notice also, though, that Abram received great wealth from Pharaoh for Sarah. He received enormous herds of animals, along with male and female servants, as payment or as a dowry for Sarah. When the Egyptian ruler sent him back to Canaan, he's allowed to keep all his ill-gotten wealth. Even though it was given to him under false pretenses, God allows him to keep it. It becomes part of his wealth, part of his possessions. It becomes partly a fulfillment of the promise that God made to him that he would be blessed. But as we will see next week when we we get into the next chapter in chapter 13, having great possessions brings with it its own complications and its own struggles. So what do we take take away from all this? Primarily what I learned from this text and what I desire for you to uh, take from it as well this morning is that God is worthy to be trusted all the time. There is no circumstance in this life that is beyond his ability to carry you through. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. One great hindrance to our doing this is when we are distracted from worshiping God by the cares and the concerns of this world. One of the wonderful truths about God is that when we fail in our devotion to him, he uses that failure to build our faith and our trust in him so that we will be stronger the next time we are tested. This becomes very evident in the life of Abram, as, he, as we will see in the coming chapters. Listen to how the Apostle Peter describes these trials. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a song that you hear on the radio uh, that I, I, I love the words to. Uh, it's a popular song. I'm sure you've heard it. It's called Trust in You. And uh, the, the, uh, the refrain says, When you don't move the mountains, I'm needing you to move. When you don't part the waters, I wish I could walk through. When you don't give the answers as I cry out to you, I will trust, I will trust, I will trust in you. And that is how our lives ought to be, trusting in the one who called us. You know, today is a day of great significance for me, personally. Not only is it my beloved wife's birthday, I won't tell you how old she is, but it's also the anniversary of another important, significant day in my life. 18 years ago today, May 22, 1998, Cheryl and I left the only church community that we had ever known to become part of another that we didn't know at the time. So that was my 32nd birthday gift to Cheryl 18 years ago. Now I know that in the last week, Sam said that you shouldn't always claim or make that claim that God is calling you elsewhere when you leave one church for another. And I agree with that. I've seen that whole thing abused. Sorry, but God is calling me to go to this church. I've seen it in a previous church where where the uh, children's minister who had just been employed, um, he said, oh, 
I, I'm sorry, but God's calling me to this mega church in this other city. And uh, it was like, oh, I, I just knew that wasn't right. But believe me that um, this event that took place in my life, in, in my family's life 18 years ago, was such a life-changing event that was only possible because God, through his grace, called me, called us to leave that community for another. And I would never dare to compare my calling and leaving that particular church to Abram's call, but there was one similarity. I had no idea where I was going. I really didn't. But in order for you to understand how radical this decision was for me and my family, I need to tell you a little bit about this little sect that we were both born and raised in. And uh, believe me, anything that I say about this particular church does not reflect the character of those who are in this particular church. Um, they are hardworking, faithful, loving, loyal people. Um, in fact, most of my family is still in there. Most of Cheryl's family is still there. Uh, we love them very much. Furthermore, I have many good memories of being in this community. And can I honestly say that in many ways, it is a very comfortable place to belong. Some things they do better than many churches. You know virtually everyone when you're in that community, even the ones who live in other states, such as Minnesota or Michigan or Arizona or throughout parts of Canada or throughout Finland and Sweden and other places where they exist. It's like one big family that stretches all over the place, wherever these churches are found. They have big summer services when they get together in the United States and in Finland. In the United States, the gatherings are only, they're a lot smaller. They're only maybe three or 4,000 people. Uh, but in Finland, they gather for like a four-day festival where all of these different members of this church get together. And they may have 80,000 people together for a four-day weekend of services. And they have this huge uh, service tent that they put in this middle of the day. They release like hundreds of acres from a farmer, and it's always in different locations throughout Finland. They lease hundreds of acres. They put this tent that holds maybe two to 4,000 people, and that's where the sermons are preached. And they've got loudspeakers everywhere. People bring their campers, their RVs and tents, and they bring lots and lots of children with them. And they are, it is, it is just an amazing uh, thing to behold. I've, I've been to several of those uh, in my younger years. People who hadn't seen each other in the year, last year or perhaps many years will meet together and they'll have all this stuff to talk about. Uh, they'll have introducing their children to each other and stuff like that. The fellowship is so deep and the relationships are so many and so real that people sleep very few hours during this time, especially since in this part of the world, the sun really doesn't set during this time of midsummer when they have these services. And so uh, I could go on and on about the beauty and the blessedness of being part of this particular religious group. Membership in this group, though, is, is, is every bit as much cultural as it is spiritual as it is religious. It is essentially your identity is very much sewn into your being part of this group. It's something that you were born into, that your parents were born into, that your 
grandparents were oftentimes born into. So it's a generational faith as well. It's, it's similar, I would say, to like the Mormon faith in terms of their community aspect of it and how they, how they um, uh, are tied and connected together. But I need to tell you why we left. For six years, I was serving as one of their pastors. I read the Bible. I read sermons and books by Martin Luther. I even listened to Christian radio, which is highly discouraged. And I began to see that there were severe doctrinal and theological errors in the teachings of the church. And let me just give you a sample. Number one, they taught that they were the only true church. Anyone who claimed to be a Christian outside their fellowship was a false Christian. Anyone who left their fellowship for another church was considered apostate. Number two, they taught that you cannot have forgiveness of sins from God directly. You had to ask another believer for forgiveness, and they would proclaim that your sins are forgiven in Jesus' name and blood. Number three, almost everything was a sin, including but not limited to TV, movies, worldly music, dancing, any form of birth control or family planning, alcohol, makeup, earrings, tattoos, fingernail polish, attending sporting events, attending pep assemblies at school, just to name a few. Number four, all socializing was to be done with other believers. Spending too much time with unbelievers was highly discouraged. You see, they had this infection of sin that might spread to you. Number five, God's promises depended on your continual faithfulness. If you sinned and didn't ask another believer for forgiveness for the sin, then it remained on your conscience, unforgiven, too many unforgiven sins, and your faith would extinguish and your salvation would be gone. In summary, this small unknown denomination was the kingdom of God. It was the only sphere within the, which the Holy Spirit works. If during the course of your life you never came into contact with one of these true believers and heard from him or her the proclamation of the forgiveness of all of your sins in the name and the blood of Jesus, you have zero hope for salvation. No amount of faith in Christ, no amount of believing in God who sent His Son Jesus here to die for us would benefit you. No amount of brokenness and contrition over your sins and crying out to God for forgiveness would impart to you any grace of salvation to cover your sins. This is the faith that Cheryl and I were both born and raised in. And I was convinced that it was the only true faith and the only path to heaven for the first 30 years of my life. I considered myself extremely blessed and fortunate to have been born into this small church and into a believing family that belonged to this, this only right church. But then as I read and studied the Word of God, I began to read and began to see a new and, and different reality. I began to see that the many promises that are made in the New Testament are that we are saved by grace through faith alone. Passages such as Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, which says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I began to have doubts about their teachings of exclusivity. The more I read, the more I began to consider the idea that maybe, just maybe, there are some others outside our little group that were also true believers. Eventually, I expressed my doubts to Cheryl one evening, 
And it scared me so much to vocalize and to put to words the doubts that I had in my heart that I vowed to never listen to Christian radio again and to uh, just put away those doubts, believe those doubts as being sin, and believe them forgiven. And uh, that lasted for a couple of weeks. Because once a person gets a taste of the truth, you'll never... You'll never be satisfied with a lie. Ever. That's the power of the gospel. Slowly, I began again to listen to the Bible Answer Man, to R.C. Sproul, to John MacArthur, to Charles Stanley, because I began to realize more and more the errors that were in the church, and it made it really difficult for me to preach because from time to time I knew that there were those who were beginning to be uncomfortable with that I was preaching. So eventually on a day exactly 18 years ago from today, I was summoned to a meeting with the other pastors who were expressing concern about some of what I had been teaching. And it was then and there that I declared to them that I no longer believe as they do, that I'm out. And it was the most amazing day of my life. I went home. And I told Cheryl, I said, happy birthday. <laughs> but it has been, it has been uh, in some ways, the most difficult thing because it is a cultural shift. It was, a, it was an identity shift. It was, it was more than just going from one church to another. You see? But God, in His grace, led us. He led us. And it wasn't, I don't know if we missed a Sunday before we had already been, God already connected to us, uh, uh, to a a church. To be clear, I didn't hear God audibly speak to me uh, and tell me to leave. But I believe with all my heart that through His Word and through His Holy Spirit, He called me out to experience the fullness and the richness of the gospel with others who also got it. It was a radical change in our lives because it necessarily changed our relationships with hundreds of people that were very dear to us, including our own parents and siblings. In their minds and hearts, they believed that we had become shipwrecked in faith and that we were no longer fellow travelers. We were no longer fellow believers we were, in their minds, on our way to hell. That is why I believe it was God who called us out. There is no other way we could have left this family that we loved and that loved us in return. But we were called by the precious words of Jesus who promised us this. John 5.24 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. I can't tell you how many times I reminded God of that promise. We were also called by God through the words of Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans chapter 10, because if you confess with your mouth 
that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. But we were encouraged to put Him even before our own families by the words of Jesus Himself when He said, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Essentially, as I received the promises of God revealed to us in his word, I knew that he would care for us along the way, every step of the way, and he has. He has been completely faithful to his promises each and every day. He did not leave us as orphans, but he adopted us into his blessed family. So we soon found ourselves at a Reformed Presbyterian church where the pastor met with us every week for over a year, teaching us the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Now the community that we had to leave behind has been replaced tenfold. The ministry I once had as a pastor was returned to me ten years ago with the planning of Damascus Road Church in Marysville. I'm blessed to have worked alongside Pastor Sam these last 10 years. Together, we have seen God do amazing work in the lives of sinners. And that, that doesn't mean everything's been easy. No, God has tested us along the way as well. I'm sure Sam will attest to that. Many times I have failed the test, but God in his faithfulness and grace always rescues me. He restores me, he strengthens me, and he grows me. Because I know the promise maker is a promise keeper, I don't lose hope. I press on, knowing that the one who began a good work in me is faithful to bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. In closing, I want to encourage those of you who are languishing in spiritual Egypt. You who have turned to man-made solutions and worldly wisdom to problems that God desires to fix if only you would turn to Him in faith. God delights in your faithful trust in Him even when times are hard and the way seems really difficult, especially during those times. It's easy to trust in God when everything is going well. Is it not? It's when things are tough that it becomes difficult. It is never too late for you to turn back to Him in repentance and in faith. God will use even your times of unfaithfulness and sin to bring you to a greater maturity in the faith, even as He did Abram, even as He has to so many sins. Now, if you've never put your faith in the finished work of Christ, if you've never trusted Him with your life, and with your eternity, do not hesitate a moment longer. Make this day, May 22nd, 
2016 a monument in your life as well. Amen.